Many of you know that Kaylee Ann is a excellent cook. How many of you guys have ever eaten some of Kaylee Ann's cooking ever in your life? Uh, she also bakes, and so she's got these cookies that she keeps. I should, sorry, Josh. She's got these cookies that she usually keeps in the fridge uh, that Josh waits to raid even when other people bring freezer. Sorry. What you don't know, golly, it's going to be interactive. I take it. I just say some wrong stuff up front. That way you guys start talking back. And so I hope you're that loud when I hit the gospel. Man. Um, she also makes cinnamon rolls. So I don't know if you've ever had one of Kaylee Ann's cinnamon rolls. They're actually far more elusive. And so to talk about sin, I want to talk about cinnamon rolls. I'm going to talk about mountain bikes. Uh, and then I'm going to have you guys have a dialogue question. Uh, the first thing, how is a communal sin like cinnamon rolls? And if you're thinking because they're so dang good, it's a sin, that's not even it. Uh, when it comes to making cinnamon rolls, uh, Kaylee Ann will make them. But there's, there's one key thing that she will, only, only one way she'll make them. And uh, it was if you would make them with her. Because cinnamon rolls, you need a good recipe, but they also take time. Because if you're not making them from that lame old tube of stuff that you pop open and slice up and then stick in the oven, that's the right appliance, right? Cool. Uh, if you're not doing that one, they have to take time to rise. So you have to make them and then put them in the fridge. And people, when they're hungry for sweets, rarely want to wait uh, the time that it takes for the yeast to do its thing and for them to rise. Uh, it takes a little while. It's also best done in community because she wants somebody there to watch, to be a part of it with her. Uh, but then the end result is delicious and enjoyable. Uh, here's what I want to say in a slightly different way than you might have been expecting. When it comes to us confronting or engaging or taking responsibility for sin that's in our community, uh, you have to start with a good recipe. That's why we're going to the Bible. This is not going to be based on preference, but it's based on what Jesus says and how Paul advised the early church. Uh, the process of dealing with sin will always take time. In fact, it's actually a little messy in the beginning, and it's not till you get to the end that you get the beautiful product. Uh, it's also like cinnamon rolls, best handled in community. Uh, sin will always involve a conversation if you're confronting it with one other person. Uh, and that's all the bare minimum for Kay to make cinnamon rolls, is you have to hang out with her with one other person. And the end result, hear this, of us confronting or processing sin together should be a beautiful picture of restoration and the gospel working itself out. Uh, I know that it doesn't always end there, but as we understand scripture, that's the aim and the intention at the end. It's never judgment or punishment, but beauty and reconciliation that we aim and we press into. For those of you like, I'm not bakers and now I'm hungry. Uh, let me just tell you real quick how uh, this process of dealing with sin is also like mountain biking. A few years ago, I got into mountain biking and it was something uh, that I hadn't done before. It was a new hobby. I wanted to try something to experiment, to get out and be in the mountains in a different way. I wanted a little bit of that adrenaline rush. And so mountain biking seemed like a great place to start, uh, which led to Caden and I watching uh, Red Bull TV. And so when you watch Red Bull TV, it's just a slew of free content with people doing some pretty amazing stuff that if they at some point in there drink a Red Bull, they get to post it on there. It's amazing. Uh, the athletes, you know, they're not even drinking it, right? They're like, I don't drink this stuff. Give me water. Uh, but they put it on there for a real short second, and they're able to show it. And what I learned, uh, if you watch mountain biking, especially when they're doing the big, gnarly stuff out in the 
mountains of Moab or wherever in Utah it is. Have you ever seen that? Like they're dropping down like 15-story buildings on bikes. It's unreal. Launching massive flips, all these things. Uh, When you look at that in real time, you're like, that's incredible. And it is. But when you watch it on Red Bull TV, you get to notice something before that. The days before they ever launch full speed down the mountain, they do what's called walkthroughs. They're off their bikes, they're stuck somewhere else, and they walk along the path every single step of the way to know what's coming up. So that way, when they hit it at full speed, they know what to expect next. And so for us, as we look at processing sin in community, here's what I want to say. This is like Jesus getting us off our bike. We're not, we're not coming to the close of this teaching, and it's like, so here's how we're going to deal with Kevin's sin. There's not like a spoiler alert or an aha thing at the end, but this is us getting off the bike together and doing a walkthrough of the course of what it looks like for us to deal with sin in community. Because hear this, as people who are sharing life and sharing mission together, we will absolutely come to moments where we see sin in someone else's life. I hope that doesn't shock you. Uh, We're sinners, and we're in community, and somebody will see sin in our lives. So what do we do? How do we respond? And so at half speed, we're going to walk through this, because when you're going through normal everyday life, it's going to come at you full speed, and we have a better shot at messing it up less if we've already walked through it together or have some idea of where we're going. I've been in dozens and dozens and dozens of communities where people have no idea where to even turn in their Bible when it comes to how do we process sin together, and so they often just ignore it. And every time, the effects of that are devastating because sin runs relational lines, and so relationships are devastated. So that's what we're going to talk about today. As we get there, We're going to do a 60-second feelings check-in at your table. Some of you are like, yo, that's lame. Then be the last one to talk, and we'll be over in time. If you're like, yeah, I'd like to participate in this, you're welcome to. Here's what I want you to do. These aren't the only feelings you can feel. But as I say, we're going to talk about sin in community. People have different emotions that raise. uh, Because all of us have been hurt in community, if you've been in any amount of time. Some of us might have tried to process sin in community and had it go out terribly. Uh, Others of us might be really glad because we're like, amen, finally somebody's going to talk about this. Um, We can have different emotions as we come to this. Uh, Some of them might be like, I don't even care. You can be indifferent, and that's how you feel, and that's okay. Um, Some of you can say you feel hungry because I talked about cinnamon rolls. Um, Whatever it is, give you 60 seconds around your table just to say how are you feeling and give it a word. You don't have to give it a long explanation or any explanation at all. That's the fun part of this. You pick a word, but it helps you to locate yourself and so you can show up to the conversation that we're about to have. So, I, I, love, uh, I love starting the conversation with that question. That was, that was like super helpful. We had in our group everything from like curious uh, maybe like a, a like anxiousness with a little bit of tinge of excitement in it to embarrassed to uh, to defensive to like all of the different emotions that are going on and anytime uh, we do talk about the places that we are falling us want to be liked and loved and find a sense of belonging none of us want to um, 
you know, Tim Keller says this. He says, everybody's greatest desire is to be fully known and fully loved, which means that everybody's greatest fear is that if we're really known, we won't be loved. You know, and um, I think one of the things that's beautiful that Jesus models differently is the lie of that second thing. Because Jesus creates a fully known community where we can be fully known and fully loved. In the midst of our frailties and weaknesses, our failures, um, the places that we uh, um, are falling short, um, the church community is supposed to be the place that we can work through those issues without fear or condemnation or a sense of embarrassment and shame, but we can actually be loved and and be restored. And so I love, uh, it's funny because I get Paul and Kevin gets Jesus. That's just how it works, right? Uh, You know, he gets, he gets the, the truer, better apostle, the truer, better prophet and king to talk about it. But Paul had some pretty good things to say about uh, sin in the camp. And here's, what's funny is oftentimes when we think about the apostle Paul, we think about like the, the stoic missionary, right? The one who just stands up and calls out sin and calls people to repentance and he's like this stoic dude but when you actually read what how he talks you meet someone who is loving kind gentle humble patient understands his his own weakness and failures as he's addressing the community's weakness failures and and it's absolutely really beautiful and so we're going to look at that so you can open up your bibles to galatians 6 we're going to be in verses 1 through 4 or you want a secret, that sheet on your table, if you flip it over, one side's Galatians 6 and one side's Matthew 18. So uh, you can just look at that. And so we're going um, to read through this together. And as we read this, I want us to remember that we're still talking about God's new humanity. So everything we've been talking about over the last weeks is still about what does it mean to be God's new humanity in the earth? What does it look like to be a devoted, loving, generous, visible community, right? That um, shows the world who, uh, what God is like and what God's kingdom could be like as we participate in Christ together. And so it's this beautiful thing. And it's an invitation that we actually get to partner with King Jesus to put things right back in order. Right? And, and put things right in the world through the building up of the body of Christ, of the community that's there. And so let's read this and, uh, and hear that. Hear that invitation to be God's new community together. And here's what the Apostle Paul says when he's talking about dealing with sin in the community. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin... You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, in this carrying of one another's burdens, you're actually fulfilling the law of Christ. And if anyone thinks they are something when they're dealing with someone else's sin, they are not. They deceive themselves. But each one should test their own actions then they can take pride in themselves alone without having to compare themselves to anyone else. For each one should carry their own load. So Paul kicks off this um, beautiful instruction on, uh, one is just a call to be a community that actually cares about one another. That, that actually is for one another's flourishing and good. That actually recognizes that we are all... Um, freed in Christ from the guilt of sin and the condemnation of sin, but all of us are on a journey to being released from the grip of sin in our lives. 
All of us are in the same place coming into a relationship with Jesus. We are trapped in sinful thinking and sinful behaviors and need freedom from those things, all of us. He levels the playing field. And here's, here's how I love how he starts this off. He starts with this term brothers and sisters. It's this tender, familial language, right? He's not like, hey, you sinners, you know, or, or hey, church, you need to be stoic and like, you know, like go after sin like this. He's like, look, brothers and sisters, first of all, he's talking about addressing followers of Jesus, people who have been baptized into Christ, those who are committed to live out their baptismal identity in community, right? He, he's not talking about people out on the world. He's not talking about addressing the sin of everybody and their mother like around you, like people at work and coworkers. He's talking about this new family of, of, of committed believers who view each other not just as strangers, but as brothers and sisters. We're talking about family and there's, there's a deep sense of connectedness. There's a, there's a deep sense of responsibility. Like, have you ever, uh, how many people in here have a sibling? Like grew up with, with a sibling, have a brother or sister. That's a unique relationship, isn't it? It's like you, like you can pester one another, but the moment someone outside of your family pesters them, it's like you'll stick up for them and, and guard them. You got their back. Like it, it's this unique relationship that we actually get to have when we enter into the community of God where we have each other's back. We're, we're siblings. We're, we're, we're these spiritual siblings that have this deep, connected relationship and, and commitment to one another. Siblings uh, know one another better than anyone else. Siblings have a unique proximity in, in relationship to one another. Siblings uh, get the good and the bad and the ugly, right? Your, your sibling knows the best and the worst parts of you. Your sin spills out when you live in proximity with one another, like Kevin already said. Like, it's just how, when we live in this new family with one another, our sin inevitably rub, rubs up against one another. It inevitably spills out on one another. And, and Paul is reminding us that when we look at one another, we're not looking at a stranger or an enemy or a combatant, but we're looking at family. Brothers and sisters in Christ, those whom we deeply care about. And, and, and really, that's where we need to start when we talk about sin. He, he, he goes in verse 1, he says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, he, he's, he's addressing sin, but before we define sin, what he's talking about, we need to acknowledge how normal and everyday sin actually is in our lives. And I know this is going to sound really weird, but like as a church, we need to normalize sin. And, and I know that's like, what? What? I don't mean that we make sin okay. But what I do mean is we need to come to grips with the fact that sin is not this like taboo thing that we need to hide. All of us, again, come into this place sinners in need of a savior. We, we come in with, 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 with wrong thinking and wrong behaviors and wrong upbringings and wrong responses and wrong understandings of what it means to like love one another uh, uh, you know, fruitfully and faithfully and under Christ's rule and reign in his perfect design. And so we need to have a place where like confession of sin ought to be the most normal thing that happens in a church. It's not like, oh, did you see what so-and-so did? That per, you know, I can't believe it. It ought to be like, oh yeah, that's normal. Like 
we're all frail and broken and in need and we don't all have it together. But at the, at the same time, he's saying where sin should be normalized, we should also take sin seriously. When someone is, is in sin, we, we take it seriously. And there's, there's a reason for that, right? Because, because sin deteriorates, right? Sin takes away, it robs, it steals. It's a type of death that moves into our lives and robs us from actually experiencing the life that King Jesus wants us all to have, a, a life of flourishing. John 10, 10 says, says abundant life. And, and he also says, I've come, uh, it is for freedom that I've come to set you free so that we would have this freedom so we can experience life the way it was meant to be. There's this beautiful picture. And so we need to, uh, before we define sin, we need to acknowledge how normal it is, how everybody is on a journey um, being freed from the grip of sin in our hearts, how this is the act of the story. If you're a missio person, this is actually the act of the story that we're in. All of us, when we follow Jesus, are going on this journey of sanctification where we're we're slowly being freed from the grip of sin. Day by day, we're encouraging one another and we're helping one another be free. And so an aspect of our discipleship to King Jesus is an ongoing commitment to be freed from the grip of sin in community. That's, that's what discipleship is. That's what we commit to here is that we actually help people live a, a, a life of flourishing and abundance in Christ. Now, in light of that, Sin is important, and, and before I talk about what sin is, I want to talk about what it's not. And this we have to get super clear as we go on this journey to do this. One, sin is not preference, right? It's not I like this, you like that, and because I like this, you're a sinner, you know, and you don't like this, you're, you're a sinner. And, and also, sin is not just preference or it's not a parenting style, Right? We, we do that where, you know, it's like my parenting style is perfect. And when you don't adhere to my style or preference, you're a sinner. It's not that. Sin is not a theological stance, right? It's, it's, it's not some sort of like, like you believe this theology and you believe this theology. And so that's sin. Like, like maybe if it's big, like if, if you're like, oh yeah, Jesus was really a cricket who came back to life. Like, yeah, that's a theology that's probably not in line with the, probably it's not in line with the gospel. And we need to address that and talk about that. But having like an eschatological discussion on whether you're pre-mill or post-mill and, you know, theology, it's, that's not sin. That, that's trying to uncover the mysteries of God together, a lot of which none of us know the fullness of, right? And so we don't, we don't uh, posture ourselves in that. Sin is not a political position. Sin is not comparing some area of your life where you're doing really well and someone else's weaker in. That's not sin, right? It, well, doing that is sin, but you can't call someone else... Uh, sin in that. And, and, and finally, sin is not an accident, right? It's, it's, it's not like a mistake or, you know, an accident. It's like the difference between, like, if, if Moses was at the table and, and he, like, knocks milk over in, in the table, like, he didn't sin in that moment. He's just being a kid, right? And if you know him, he's, like, got a ton of energy and he uses his hand. I think he gets the Italian from his mama, you know what I mean? And so he just, he does that, right? Now, if he stood up and like grabbed the milk and said, dad, I hate you and smashed it on the ground, like, yeah, that's a sin issue that we need to deal with in that moment. He's never done that. But um, that would be a sin issue. But sin is serious. And here in, uh, in chapter five, 
verses 19, just right above the section where Paul addresses a sin, uh, he actually talks about what sin is. And he says this, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Now listen to this list. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery. So, so he has this whole category of sexual sin and, and believe even in the first century when Paul was doing, sexual sin was rampant. It was all tied up in, in their worship and religious things and sexual sin is ramp, rampant in our day. I don't think there hasn't ever been a, a season or an era where sexual sin hasn't been on the top of the list because it's actually a huge part of our identity. You, you see why it can get twisted up because it's a huge part of who we are as creatures um, in God's image. And so it's here in this thing. But it's not only that. Listen to what else he says. He says, idolatry. That's a big category, right? So idolatry is just any good thing that we make a God thing, right? Anything that we look to to try to satisfy what God has uh, created us to satisfy. And then he says, witchcraft. I, don't, I actually don't know what that means. I didn't spend that much time looking into that. There's all these theories on like what that actually means. I don't think it means enjoying Harry Potter, all right? So don't worry about that. That is not uh, what this, this is about. I, I think this has something to do with certain practices that were going on um, in that time. And then, yeah, if you're like, like busting out a Ouija board and like, you know, uh, praying light as a feather, stiff as a board, you know, with your friends a week, and that could be, de- you know, delving into some things that aren't good and healthy for you. You know, if you're summoning the demonic realm, yeah, that's probably bad. Um, that, that is sin, what he's talking about. But then he goes on, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, All right? You road ragers? Selfish ambition, that's a curious one, isn't it? Dissension, factions. So, so one is dissension, like where you're, you're the one like kind of causing, the other one's factions where you like, you, you exist in little cliques, right? You have your own little group of people that, that you don't blend in in the, in the community or invite others into to that. Um, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and then he just throws in, and the like, you know? So uh, here's the point. Paul doesn't give us just a list of sins to avoid. He gives us this, this comprehensive list to remind us that sin's a big thing. It encompasses a lot of different things. It's comprehensive. It, it touches both attitudes and actions. It touches the mind and the heart. It, 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 it is addressing both um, affairs on your spouse and misplaced affections. It, 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 it encompasses murders and gossips. It, uh, it, it deals with racism and political elitism. It is drunkenness, but it's also escapism. Netflix. Right? Like, there is... Like, it, that's a big, it's a comprehensive deal. And this should sober us, right? Because w- what Paul is not saying is, I just want to give you a list of rules that you need to follow. What he's saying is that sin is robbing you of the life that God has called you to live. And so we take sin seriously. And our hope as a community is that every single person in this place would experience freedom and life and joy and love and belonging. And sin is what gets in the way of that. 
And basically Genesis 3 desires at the root of sin is, is, is a desire for autonomy. It's a big word that, that really just means self-govern. I wanna, I wanna choose my own way. I wanna define good and evil for myself. I want to uh, do what I want, when I want, how I want, and why I want it with disregard for others and God's good design for creation. See, it, 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 and Paul says in another way, it's to become a law unto self and to ad- attempt to define what is good for ourselves. But the invitation of the gospel is to live under the rule and reign of Christ with all its creative possibilities, but also with the limitation of God's design. Now listen, then he says two things. Ultimately, and, and Kevin already said that, sin is a relationship issue. We're relational creatures and sin breaks away from God's loving care. And sin wreaks havoc on our identity and it wreaks havoc on our community. It separates us from God and one another and it leads to death. Like sin kills joy and love and peace and unity, right? And and we don't wanna fall into the trap that Adam and Eve fell into where they're like, oh, the apple's good for eating and they take a bite and they're like, see, I didn't die. And they forget that, Their identity died that day. Their relationship with God died that day. And their unity with one another died that day. A real death enters in. And so we, if we're going to begin to live as God's new humanity in in God's world, we must address sin. And here's the question, and and, and Kevin's going to get more into this, but I'm going to give us just two. Paul tells us how. Paul gives us guidance. He doesn't leave us on his own, but he, he shows us how to do it. First, he says this, you who live by the Spirit, you who live by the Spirit. If, if you're someone who's in step with the Spirit, if you're experiencing the fruit of Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in your life, like, like if you're living by the Spirit, then you have a responsibility to bring that Spirit to others. The Spirit of God's freedom and the Spirit of, of, of God's love to other people. Um, Jesus says it in a similar way. He says, um, before you try to remove the speck out of your brother's eye, take the log out of your own, right? And so before you go into a situation thinking, hey, you're all high and mighty and better than, like, check yourself before you wreck yourself type of deal. Like, you, like, you, you who live by the Spirit, Watch yourself so you're not tempted. Make sure that as you're dealing with someone else's sin, that doesn't become sin because you're puffed up in pride or judgment or gossip or whatever else. But then he gives us the goal and the posture. And this is what he says. You who live by the spirit should restore that person in gentleness. And that's the, 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 the whole point of dealing with sin in community. The whole aim, the whole motive is restoration, is restoring someone. It's not judging them, it's not punishment, it's not validation for the way you live your own life, it's restoring them back to what sin destroys, a relationship to God, a relationship with community, and a, a, a restored, a, a restored even to their role in, in the world as image bearers. It's all about restoring people back to that which they fell, unity in the body and and intimacy with God. And then here's the final thing that he says, we do it gently. And I love this word. Like we don't go in guns blazing and and the, the sentiment is that there's no harshness at all 
as we address people's sin. There's no pride and there's no harshness. It's gentle. People are more than the sin that they were caught in. See, and and what we often do when we address sin is we reduce people just to that sin, to that one thing. And we have to understand that people are more than their sin. And and, and their sin isn't the only thing that's at, that that, that is, uh, um, their sin is not the only thing that defines them in that moment. And then in verse two, he gives us this beautiful thing. And I'll end with this. He reminds us that carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. See, he tells us that we are responsible to carry one another's burdens. It's not just about calling out sin in someone. It's about walking with them to, in freedom, walking with them to restoration, right? Giving, carrying their burden, carrying their shoulder, all the pain that, that they uh, are experienced there. And we have to fight our own arrogance because in this passage, we know that if, if my neighbor sins today, right? I'm, I'm carrying their burden today. It might be my burden that they're carrying tomorrow. It might be my sin that they're helping me through tomorrow. And so we approach it without arrogance, but with gentleness. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to give a couple of minutes and just process two questions. One, when you hear this, when you hear Paul's design for dealing with sin in community, a posture for rest, uh, of restoration and gentleness. What are some barriers or fears that you have in addressing someone else's sin? And then the second question is this, what is to gain if we, if we took responsibility for one another in this way? What do we have to gain by taking responsibility for one another in this way? Have at it. Write it down, talk about it, discuss, and uh, then we'll come back. Sometimes in life, I wish that uh, Jesus would have written a chapter and a verse to tell you exactly what to do. I don't know if you guys ever feel that way. Uh, Around some big church thing, like baptism, right? Jesus just says baptize people, but he doesn't say how. Um, He tells us to take the Lord's table, but he doesn't tell us how. Um, Much of the pastoral life would be, or some of it would be alleviated if he would have just said, here's what you're supposed to do, and then we were able to follow that. I find it ironic that the thing that he did tell us how to do, we're actually really hesitant to do it the way that he told us to do it. And that's how we deal with sin in the Christian community. Matthew 18, I would love for you guys all to read this with me. I know it's a small print up there. It's bigger on the page in front of you. Um, One thing, context-wise, just don't miss this. This is tagged right between the parable of the wandering sheep and the parable of the unmerciful servant. The first one telling a story about how God pursues with love those that wander off. That's the one right before Jesus is going to hit this little pocket of teaching. The one right after it is that part where he's like, hey, how often should I forgive my neighbor? Uh, like seven times, is that cool? And then Jesus goes, no, Peter, it's 70 times seven. And then tells another story of extravagant grace and mercy and how God expects us to respond to others. And then this teaching is tagged right in the middle of that. God's merciful pursuit of us and those that are lost and God's merciful forgiveness of us and how we're supposed to respond to others. And then this teaching is tagged right in the middle of that. Read with me. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. 
But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen to even the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them in the midst. Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or my sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? He's really generous. Our cancel culture would put it well before that, wouldn't it? Up to seven times, Jesus answered, there is no cancel culture in the kingdom of God. I tell you, not seven times, but 77 or seven times seven times. A picture of fullness and beauty. And I just want to walk through this uh, for us because it sets a matrix. And with uh, uh, two comments at the front end. One, uh, I know some of the people in this room have walked through their own sin with a church and it's gone beautifully. And others of you have had to walk through brokenness with the church and had it gone poorly and restoration hasn't accomplished. That does not mean you didn't do something right. It means that uh, God's kingdom has not come in full yet. And so not everything that's wrong has been reconciled. But two, don't let your past experiences prevent you from experiencing grace right now. That there is still a pathway forward and we're still invited to follow after this and keep leaning in because this is what Jesus calls us into as a path, as a community. And there will be times when we get this more right than others. And so hear this with grace. Uh, my two words for how are you feeling coming into this? Because I asked one word and then I gave two because that's what pastors do, right, um, was one, excitement, because I'm really excited because I think this kind of training equips you to be the people of God in the church, like the kingdom of God, to be able to be that, not just telling you ought to, but shows us how. But then there was also an intimidation because I know that all of you are sitting at your tables with at least like 20 other people. And I don't mean the friends that are actually at the table. I mean those who have wronged you in your past, the pastor that was an idiot and gave you awful advice, the small group leader who kicked you out because you kept sinning, the other person that you tried to confront that gave you a thumbs up and then left in the group altogether. Like all of us are sitting at the table with all those people plus the five other from Missio. So that's a bit intimidating to talk to all y'all today, but I'm really hopeful. So let's read verse 15. Uh, I encourage you, if you're taking notes, just feel free to circle something. You got a question, draw a squiggly. We can talk more about this later, but here's 10 minutes on it. If your brother or sister sins, again, this is not preferences, limits, or accidents. Uh, the heart of God isn't to discipline those preferences, limits, or accidents, but sin. And so this is if there's a sin like David described. Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Uh, this is really an important part of the process. And when you see someone in sin, you see me answer Kayleigh harshly. Then the response is uh, not to go to somebody else and say, yo, did you see that too? Okay, it wasn't just me. All right. Hey, did you see that too? Okay, it wasn't, because we want to do that to validate ourselves. Jesus says, no, when you see that, go to that person directly. Start with the personal. A gaining, and then at the end result of this, again, is reconciliation. Then you've gained your brother or your sister back. 
Like you've gone, you've said, hey, there's an area where you're rebelling against God. There's an area where sin has gotten control of your life and it's destroying you and community. And I don't want that to keep going on. And they look at that and they're like, oh my goodness, you're right. I didn't even see that. Uh, We all have blind spots. And they're called blind spots because you can't see them. But others can. So when they see that, There's a soft-hearted response that is possible. It doesn't have to get blown up every time. This passage is often used with church discipline. How much of that could be prevented when a loving sister came along someone else and said, hey, I see this in your life and this is sin. Jesus invites us into something better and that other person goes, you're right. Solved. There's no need to have the prayer request for him. There's no reason to jump on group me and say, yo, did you see what so-and-so did? There's no reason to be around another dining room table and triangulating around that person. It's over, it's squashed, it's done. It shows us this distinction though that's gonna be between a, a soft heart and a, hoft, and a hard heart. The soft heart responds to the good news invitation in a call to repentance. But Jesus is aware that it doesn't always go that way. And the very next verse, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Um, This is going to show us what do we do if there's, there's a hard heart involved. A hard heart is someone that when you come to them and you say, hey, Kevin, I saw you talk harshly to your wife. That's not how Jesus deals with the church. It's not kind. It's not loving. Like that's something that's off about you. And I go... I don't think you're right. I think you missed it. I think she needed to hear it in that tone, otherwise she doesn't listen to me. I think that it's not that big of a deal. This culture is just too soft. You generation, whatever it is. What one are we at now? Millennials, you're like 40, so you don't count. It's like generation like X, Y, Z, Q, whatever it is. Like you're just too soft. Like that's how people talk. You start to defend it. And we push back. Hard-heartedness, we can start to place blame on those that come at us. Hey, hey, uh, Tim, you're calling me out on this. You saw this in my life. And I push back and be like, yo, I saw the way that you talked to that other driver. Why are you coming at me? And we start to defer and say like, I heard you, come on now. Act like I'm the only one who talks harsh around here. And that hard-heartedness builds up this resistance and this posture of not being able to be corrected. Uh, This quotation that he uses in here, though, when he says to bring a few others, and this is important for us, he's quoting Deuteronomy 19.15. You can jot that down if you want. He's also quoting Numbers 35.30, and this is a legal uh, term. He's not just saying two of your friends who have your back go and gang up on the third person. He's not saying uh, people that weren't even in the room, go grab them because they heard your story, and they're like, yo, that is jacked up that Kevin would talk like that. We ought to go talk to him. He's saying two or three other people, like in a legal court, that saw the same thing, that were a part of that same MC gathering, that could say, no, Kevin, you actually were really, really harsh. We all saw it, and we all want better for you, and we want better for your family. So it's that court imagery, not just two friends that might agree with you, but other people that saw the same thing, because if this is a pattern of life, it will be visible to others in this ecclesia or this church. If you're gonna write something down, write this. uh, Gossip before constant confrontation is not biblical. That means it doesn't mean go get two or three friends on your side so that you got backup when you launch at somebody. It says those two and three person, again, they're coming in with the same hope to restore what's broken. 
but we don't go to others and talk about it to get our story all the way straight and get all of our arguments in place and then blindside somebody. But we go to the person first. When they don't listen, we bring two or three others that would say, hey, I see the same thing and we want better for you. Jesus knows that that doesn't always work. And so he keeps speaking. He says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen to even the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. He says, if they won't listen to just the two or three witnesses, you go to the broader body. Uh, Very often, practically, this looks like the leadership of the church and then the entire body if somebody won't respond. That language in there, the Gentile and the tax collector, uh, often trips people up quite a bit. Uh, because they don't uh, really remember how Jesus treated Gentiles and tax collectors. How did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? There is friends. What else? Loving. He pursued them. He made time for them. He had space for them. He welcomed them to the table. But he was also acutely aware that they were not currently following him at the time, and they were always invited to start following him. Here's what I think this means, and I'm happy to talk about this longer at length if you're like, I'm still wrestling with it and I don't quite see where you're at. Uh, Jesus treats tax collectors with love and urgency, but aware that they're not listening to the voice of God right now. He's wanting to be with them, but knowing right now they aren't submitted to him as king. So right now in this way, there's something blocking and they're not, I'm not talking about just eternal destinies. Jesus isn't either. But he's saying when somebody's living in sin and you go to them and they don't respond and then you bring two other people who see the same thing and at this point, it probably is a pretty big deal. And he also say like, I'm still not gonna go with it. And then you bring it to the church and the church says, hey, we love you. We have space for you. We want you to return and bow your knee to Jesus and stop living for yourself. And they still don't say, all right, I repent. Then he says, you treat them like you would. Like you still meet with them, have space with them. But hear this, fam. Like that doesn't mean that we create a triangle with them where we listen to all their complaints about the church and everybody that's tried to love them from the church because we're just trying to be kind to them. Uh, Don't go in naively. If you're at this place, there's a really good chance that they're gonna tell you why everybody who's tried loving them is wrong. And so if you're gonna listen to them, you do what Jesus did and you still call them to repentance from a place of love and hospitality and welcome. And I get that that's a hard tension to run. That's why David's passage said, you who are following the spirit ought to do this. Jesus is assuming that you've already heard the Sermon on the Mount at this point, right? Where it said, take that log out of your own eye before you take the speck out. You're not going in in a way that you wanna judge, but in a way that leads to life. So when we see the person who's still in sin, We welcome him or her in. We show them the love of Christ. We don't bait and switch them and say, hey, I want to grab coffee. And really that's a Jesus juke to tell them about all the ways they're wrong. But we also don't allow for people to just gossip about others that we love and we're trying to bring them into life. Jesus goes on verse 18. He says, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done by them and my father, by my father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Uh, that's a really popular Bible study verse. Let's just pay attention because we're teaching here on Sunday where the context is. This is directly in the context of confronting sin. Hear this. When you go to confront sin and it's gotten to this level, it is costly. It takes time. It takes 
energy. It'll probably cost relationship. There's money involved often when we look towards therapy and counseling and stuff as people come towards healing. But what Jesus is saying is, if two or three of you, that harkens back to the witnesses, this community that's giving care to this person in sin, whatever you ask in my name, like remember, I'm there with you. Heaven is agreeing with you. Pursuing people in sin matters. Restoring them is a good work. And it has the presence of Jesus in it. Because if you're ever in that place, you know you need the presence of Jesus to continue on. Because there comes a time where you're like, forget this, this isn't worth it. I'm not getting paid. Well, you're like, I'm not getting paid for this. Like, this isn't what I wanted to do. I have other things to do on a Friday night than to sit down with you about sin. And then I'm gonna have you yelling at me. Like, I don't think you know what this is. And Jesus goes, well, don't forget. I'm with you. And we're sitting at that table. We're at that Starbucks. We're in that living room. We're in that patio. And we're chasing down the lost children of God to bring them back into the family in gentleness and humility and it's worth it, even though it takes a lot. Then Jesus, Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times am I supposed to do this? Up to seven times? Seems like a lot. I don't know if you've ever had to repeat, forgive somebody. It can seem like a lot. And Jesus goes, no, no, no. The extravagant love of God that has been poured out you will fuel you to do this 70 times seven to keep on doing it. And I want to speak super quickly to two misuses of that. First, in cases of criminality, hear this clearly, Missio. If a crime has been committed, we call the police. Sound shocking? We're not hiding people's sin. We can work this process in tandem to the investigation that the police are doing uh, when it comes, and there is denominations now that are getting put on the front page of all newspapers for having hidden this to say, like, let's not deal with this, let's hide this, let's just move them around, shuffle the deck when they knew crimes were committed. That's not what we're going to do. Across Missio Day communities, we have made a pledge to one another as leaders. If there is crimes that are committed in our community, we do the work of saying we got to walk through a process now, but it also involves a crime against our neighbor. And so how do we walk with this? I'm not talking jaywalking. I am talking people abusing kids or spouses. I'm not talking about whether or not you might have messed with your taxes just a little bit and not claimed all your tips. But within that, we will absolutely take that seriously. And I'm not telling you to keep on acting like somebody didn't sin when they are repeatedly breaking the law and abusing somebody else. We absolutely will take that seriously and that's a crime. And the second thing I just want to encourage us with is if somebody says they're not ready yet to walk through this process, that doesn't mean that they're not willing at all, and we should just keep rushing ahead. Uh, what I wish Jesus gave us in this text was a pace to follow. If you've ever run a marathon or even a mile, uh, you run it at a certain pace. And it's like a 10-minute pace, a 12-minute pace, a 5-minute pace for you freaks, like that sort of thing. And Jesus doesn't give us a pace to go through this in. I think it's dependence on prayer as we go. But just because somebody says, hey, I'm not ready to go to the next step of this yet. I'm not sure. I need to think more on this. There's going to be some following uh, the Spirit of God, speaking to a community about what that pace looks like. But it should still be moving forward. So in your MC, when this takes place, don't let this get swept up in the current of all the other urgency of things going on. If somebody still needs to work through reconciliation, somebody should be tasked to bring that back up and continue working through it. Uh, and then also don't 
take and say like, so-and-so is not ready to work through this yet. If I can admit it and I can process it and I say I need more time just because you three confronted me, I might not be ready to answer right now, but next week, can we meet up again because I want to process this with you? That's a completely acceptable response. And Jesus gives this as a beautiful way forward for us. It's meant to lead to life and restoration. And so if we follow this idea of taking responsibility for communal sin together, here's some markers of what it'll look like if done in the vein of what Paul invites us into and what Jesus invites us into and what your entire Old Testament invites you into. It'll be compassionate, marked by gentleness, love, mercy, the fruit of the Spirit, plug it in there. It'll be communal. There'll be multiple people involved when it escalates by a lack of repentance but not before confrontation. Let the conversation go bad before you invite your friend into it. And that's hard for us to do. It's comprehensive. That means it's going to address both the victim, the victimizer, and it's restorative for both in hopes and intentions and directions. And it's costly. Time, energy, money, relationships are all on the line. And that's why it matters so much that it's Christ-like and it's worth it. And that's what Jesus reminds his church of in that moment saying, hey, we're two or three of you are gathered in these kind of conversations. I'm there with you in the midst of that. We can send these slides out. So if you're trying to write them all down, we take care of that. But I'm going to send you back to your tables to pick this first question. I'm going to give us two minutes, so a few just initial thoughts. Uh, why do you think Christian communities aren't known for practicing this kind of shared responsibility towards sin? I saw a lot of your heads nodding when you're reading through that list, being like, man, that would be beautiful, but it, why doesn't it happen? Um, what are a few thoughts towards that? Because whatever we say about the church is probably true about us too. And so we could just talk about the church at large, even though we tend to find ourselves in that. And then after two minutes, I'm going to invite one person from your table to just pray that Missio would be the kind of people who are marked by grace and mercy and reconciling love and soft hearts, not hard hearts, so that we can be a witness to our neighborhoods and an enjoyable experience for the people that are part of this and that we'd have the grace to endure even when it's not. So uh, two minutes on the conversation and then I'll move us and would one person at your table pray over Missio Mesa and then we'll come to the table together because there's no better place to end up tonight's talk. So ready? Turn towards each other. Two minute clock starts now.